13 minutes it is before 8 p.m. It's our wrap of the top business stories here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, joined on the line uh, by Snesipo Manenjua, independent market commentator, analyst and CA. Snesipo, good evening to you and welcome. Evening, Aya. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Much appreciated, Snesipo. Let's take a look at some of these stories now. And I want us to start off, I guess, with the one... Uh, of the Bretton Woods Institution, the International Monetary Fund. You know, uh, yeah, are we going to the IMF? I mean, it seemed there was a lot of dilly-dallying a few weeks ago. Uh, A lot of people saying, well, you know, if we go to the IMF, we hand over our sovereignty. Uh, But we do know that uh, they had uh, some very attractive, uh, I guess, funds on offer to respond to COVID-19 at uh, very attractive interest rates. And uh, it seems now uh, that uh, we might be uh, crossing the line and going to ask for their support. Well, I, uh, you know how I feel personally about the IMF, uh, but the truth be told is Asina Mali, and we don't think losing investment-grade status, we don't have, from just an SA Inc. balance sheet, we don't have the capacity to add on more debt, mm. raise more taxes. So we already know that because of the lockdown, there's going to be, it was already struggled to collect the taxes, the target for the year for SARS, it's going to even be a bigger struggle. So it's sort of a no choice. I do get, the IMF did say that they've learned uh, from the evil, the evil history, specifically in the 1980s mm. within the African context, continent. But for me, I, I'm just thinking of, if you just think about a couple of years ago, you had the whole Greek situation. That's not even that far along. Wait. <laughs> so for me, it feels um, like yesterday, actually. Yeah, that's the important. And they, the the austerity measures that they introduced, mm. it, it's it's just for me. And I'm, I, although they said that it doesn't come with strings attached, if I'm the lender of last resort, because that's what the IMF is, why wouldn't there be strings? So that just for me is just from a fundamental basis, and. We need to look at how we're going to negotiate. With me personally, I don't see any other option. Asinamal. Literally. And also, I mean, I guess there's, there's the other dimension when Asnesipo, and, you know, the reality of it is that we're a member of this thing. And I'm yes. sitting here asking myself, why every year would we be paying membership to the New Development Bank, to the IMF, and all of these different institutions if we can't access their crisis funds? that are given, I think it was just over 1% uh, at an interest rate. But the issue, I guess, is not necessarily what we're going to the IMF for now. It's uh, what some people are suggesting. Uh, this might be the opening of a door uh, to many other visits uh, to the Bretton Woods institutions for this kind of support. And I guess that's where your concerns of sovereignty and some of the strings that are attached uh, to this generosity come in. Yes, they do. And also, one of the things of my concern is... Um, my concern is that once you get into that hole, how do we get ourselves out? You heard President Uramaposa requesting uh, a debt, um, some debt, uh, some debt relief packages for for, um, for African countries yes. where they freeze in repayment to free up resources. For me, that's more of a tangible solution than getting into more debt. Let us deal with what, if you look at where we are, mm. even if you look at National Treasury um, Income Statement, that interest line is significantly 
the line that keeps has been creeping up and has been growing year on, year on, year on. I think for me, that is more of a tangible solution than getting into more debt. Well, what's the prospect of that? I mean, uh, what's the appetite in your view from what you've seen for people, um, be it in the G8 and the G20 and some of the creditor countries, uh, to actually give the relief that many African countries have been calling for? I mean, even Tito called for it. Uh, when he penned a joint letter from all of the finance ministers, uh, I think, to the IMF and to the World Bank. I think there is zero prospect of that happening. The fact that we're talking loan and not debt relief, mm. the answer is the answer is sort of the writing's on the wall for me on that, um, the, uh, from that perspective alone. Because for me, I think the fact that we all know we're going and the debt conversation has only gone as far as a letter. Ish. It hasn't. It hasn't yeah, gone the yeah. same. Just for me. Just for me. That's just for me as a signaling mm. of what is to come. Uh, like I said, that would be my first price solution. Okay. Let, let's pause this, Nessie Point. I'll, I'll come back to that issue. <laughs> Six minutes it is before eight p.m. You tuned in to a Metro FM talk here on the Mighty Metro with myself, Ayabong Akawe. It's our wrap of the top business stories. And if you just joined us, we're talking about uh, South Africa going to the IMF uh, for uh, some much needed. Uh, I guess, relief uh, support and uh, in the form of uh, a loan. And uh, Snesipo, you were saying before the break that uh, all you've heard about the debt relief calls about on the part of many African nations and even those in the global south has just been letters and maybe deputations and, you know, uh, very high-level discussions. And I was saying, Zutale, I mean, you know, Abandu, you know, Iskalo Salobola is often a letter. Iskalo of many <laughs> things is often a letter. Uh, um, I mean, what what ought to come after a letter like that, ideally from your end? I mean, I saw a very strongly worded letter uh, towards uh, the start of uh, the month of May, uh, which I said was penned by Tito Mboweni on behalf of many African finance ministers. And, and, and the big question I was asking myself then was, uh, you get this letter, you then have some conversation. How do you get to the point where countries like Angola, like Zambia, like Nigeria, like South Africa get the ne- debt relief that's necessary in a context where there's much lower commodity prices? Uh, that's, that's the thing. And that's actually for me, that's unfortunately the thing. So it's not to say in the ideal letter, but what I'm saying is that if the letter had its intended a discussion, intended discussion, and it's got its attended, intended message, we would not be having the talk about borrowing from the IMF. So for me, I think, I think it's not to say, and also at the same time for me, I find debt relief a lot more palatable because for me, the money that we're spending on interest payments uh, could actually go to COVID relief, could go to COVID relief. And it, 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 for me, it's a much more practical solution because for me, it's a direct cash flow impact, mm, mm. direct cash flow. But, Taking in the loan, taking in the loan from the IMF, what if the funds are exhausted? So for me, then you have to go back again. But this time you might have to go back on different terms. So for me, that's sort of like my biggest concern. Because if you do debt um, relief and after maybe 6 to 12 months, we see it's not efficient, then you can, you can still pursue the loan option. So yes. you still have options yeah. to go. So for me, that's how I view it personally. That's how I view it personally. But alas, you know, I'm open to being proven wrong. Yeah, look, I mean, I I think the other dimension, and I mean, I broadly agree with what you're suggesting. I think the other dimension to uh, some of the issues of debt is that the more you take on, I mean, I remember in the February budget, the suggestion was that 15.2% 
of our um, you know expenditure was on debt service costs. Now, now what that suggests, I mean, that in every rand you're spending close on twenty cents just in servicing debt, money that you could be using uh, to build schools, to build the infrastructure uh, that we're seeing is much needed in many schools unable to open at this point, and to also uh, fix uh, you know many of the day-to-day bread and butter challenges that people are faced with. So there's also a distributional consequence here uh, where money from our fiscus that is, um, I I guess, collected and uh, even collections have taken a knock uh, is now a big chunk of it, close on a fifth of it, now being used uh, to service debt instead of uh, really dealing with many of the backlogs that we have. Yes, I I, I think I completely, completely agree. And that's how I personally have always looked at it. But alas, and for me, this is one of my concerns. I don't see us out trading. There's nothing ticking in our economy. We already were on a knife's edge pre-COVID. Mm. We've just like now gone off the entire cliff. We don't know if the parachute is going to open. So those are the type of conversations and things I'm worried about yeah, because I don't yeah. see where... So, okay, we deal with COVID. Where is our growth coming from? We've had declining growth. A D, the opposite of growth. We even before, even before, before. COVID. So, so, so for me, it's like I don't know where the turnaround can come from. And for me, the only institutions that can can possibly facilitate a turnaround would be your state-owned institutions mm. and government as sort of a a, a massive stimulus. Oh, but for me, right. even, that's a, even then, and then oh. even there, because the thing is that for me, I don't subscribe to the concept of trickle-down economics. Look, I, I mean, I, 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 and I think even on my end, you're preaching to the converted. I think my only concern with the SOEs uh, is all of the wasted potential. I mean, even before COVID-19, uh, many of them weren't even spending their capital budgets. Now, uh, if you think about what that means for the repair and maintenance of key network industries, right through from our electricity uh, through to our rail system, uh, you know, uh, right through to even the things we're using here to broadcast. I mean, all of this has to go through uh, Centec or even go through a certain entity, the bulk of which are state-owned entities. And I think that's those are the debates that we might have to have uh, as a society, even before we think about where to go and get money and all of those other things, because those are the key drivers of our growth and our growth potential going forward. Talking about that growth potential, I mean, sensibly, I would have thought a lot of people during the lockdown would have been at home uh, enjoying amakla tenguku, having chicken, um, you know, either frozen portions or even, I guess, those that, uh, you know, are put in the oven or over the coals. It seems uh, that uh, that hasn't translated in any way to RCL's numbers. If indeed it has happened, they, they are forecasting a drop in their profits uh, on the back of COVID-19. Yes, so it's a funny thing. With us cooking at home, uh, we have been consuming less chicken. So chicken has faced competition. Mm. So you have to look at the fast food market in SA. Um, chicken so, so, so is the bulk of the sales of a RCL largely coming from like sort of fast food retailers? And yes. So, okay. Sure. Yeah, it's actually quite funny. And I find it quite, it's literally one of the things that I was shocked to find out. And remember, the, another thing is that the logistics cost also saw fire flames. Remember a couple of weeks ago we were discussing Tiger Brands mm. and we, we were sort of debunking the theory that we expected, we expected, all of us expected food brands to just shoot up because everyone's at home. That's not necessarily true. That, that's not has been, that has not been the case. Added to that, a lot of the consumers have had loss of income. So they're not able to buy and meat is not a necessity. You sort of move to 
So I always say to people um, how it goes, you know, in any economics, you substitute. Mm, mm. So if you can't buy drumstick, you substitute with levers, you substitute, you're still buying. And that's what happened. That's what happens when you have a shrinking income. Wow. Added that, added to that, as which is also a different, another layer altogether, is that you can't eat the same thing every day. Mm, mm. So, so little things, little things about this lockdown sort of like, so for me, I also subscribed. I thought that foods were going to do well. Yeah, and yeah. You, they, like we assumed, we sort of assumed that practice and results are now, are now mm. showing us that with a declining income base, chicken, unfortunately, and people must not kill me on the Twitter streets, is not your... Uh, your rich man's uh, protein option. Your rich man's protein. It's more. Mm. It's more of your poor man's mm. protein option. Yeah, and I guess with the income shock to many poorer households, uh, we would have expected these numbers. But I guess there's another dimension to their business. When us Nesibo that I'm quite interested in, uh, because they're also an upstream player in the feed that goes into many of the chickens that they slaughter, uh, but also downstream in terms of the distribution and the merchandising uh, through their vector business. Um, you know, uh, what are they expecting there? I mean, we would have seen with COVID-19 that uh, the bulk of the uh, adjustment has also been a shock to supply chains, a shock to, uh, you know, distribution capability and effective grinding to a halt of all of those activities. What impact have those had on their uh, bottom line? So you, you, so part of the reason why um, LCL Foods, they, pre- they like to control their value chain. So in the business model for poultry, uh, poultry as a standalone business doesn't actually make a lot of money. You need to sort of find ways to control your cost mm. line throughout the value chain. Unfortunately, even with the petrol price decrease, your logistics cost increase has increased quite significantly your, and also getting, getting, getting your product to the feed. So remember, one of the biggest things that, was, that people had to deal with in terms of lockdown and even essential businesses had to deal with was that government would gazette, um, government gazetted uh, saying that, okay, food is open, but certain impact of food would not be open. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example about it. So your entire value chain is not is aligned to different, you, in, you interlink with different industries. Yes. And if they're not open, it makes it harder for you to get the goods as the main, as the main. Mm, mm. So it's also about the intrinsics of value chain. I think this is also one of the most frustrating aspects have been about the lockdown regulation is that the fact that there hasn't been much, I think we're only now starting to understand the impact of value chains. When you say one lockdown here, uh, it's like people are by telling you, where does everything come from? Mm. Like the entire and the interlinkages that we all have within the country. Yeah. You can't get that, that. You can't get that beer if that uh, glass packaging plant. And that's literally. Literally as simple as that. And I think mm. the console argument, like console makes glass, but their biggest clients are the alcohol guys. Yeah. So console is not an essential business. But glass is also used for milk, also used yeah, for in... Preserve it, you know, for preserving stuff, you know, those jars, yeah, but people... So, mm. so, 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 simple example. Console had to apply, so the process had to be saying that we're only opening, and they couldn't open at full capacity as mm. well. So these are just examples when you think about interlinkages. So I think one of the, that is also one of the challenging aspects of the regulation is that you, at some, on some level you understand it, but when you start looking at the interlinkages, value chain wine, getting the feed there, mm. 
Mm. So getting the feed and a little thing, a little example. Um, so a friend of mine once car broke down in Bloom. There was she couldn't find a tire because they had a backlog in Bloom. <laughs> So they didn't have BMW, didn't have a tire. It's little things when you think, okay, that part's an essential business. But considering the back, what the backlog has caused, mm. this lockdown, the backlog has caused yeah. little things like I was at a uh, baby shower, I was at Baby City, and there was no pampers. I was shocked. There was huh. no pampers. And I had to go to two different stores to get pampers just to understand the concept of value chain. And when you even just say, even when you tell people, oh, you can only open, but at mm. 50% production, yeah. you're not getting the volumes that you want. You're not getting the volume. And even when the stores closed, I sure, remember when the sure, stores sure. closed and we shopped, it took, I think, three or four weeks for the, the, um, the shelves to be restocked, mm. even though they were food. It, it, it just gives yeah. you the, it's, it, it, yeah. We're going to have to pause there. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Always a pleasure catching up with you. We'll have to leave it there. And uh, But big thank you certainly for, I guess, uh, making for a perfect segue into our next conversation uh, with uh, the airports company of South Africa. Uh, you might have seen in uh, your bill uh, for your last air ticket. There's uh, always that... Uh, you know, those taxes or, or airport charges that you find at the bottom. Well, AXA, those are the guys uh, who are the landlords for many of these uh, airports. And uh, they collect uh, some of those uh, taxes uh, from many of the airlines. And uh, we're going to be talking to their CEO, Mpumipo, Mpumipofu, uh, for the second part of our business wrap.